Hope everyone's doing well. How was the food tonight? Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for those who have prepared the food every single Wednesday night and for those people who clean up and pick up uh, afterwards. We're very grateful for you. Well, I'm sure you probably heard the old, worn-out cliche, you, you get what you pay for. You know, you, you pay a top-dollar amount for something, and you get top-dollar amazing results or products. Or you pay a dirt-cheap amount for something, and you get dirt-cheap, lousy results or products. But the truth is, it's not always true. You get what you pay for? Not quite. Well, you guys are already talking at me, so I'm going to have you talk to each other. Uh, So I want you to talk to the people around you at your table and address the following questions. Have you ever paid top dollar for something that absolutely tanks? Like it just is broken, it's horrible. What was it? And then secondly, have you ever paid a dirt cheap price for something that rocks? And what was it? Ready? Go. If you're still talking at your table, make sure you you give someone else a chance. got like 30 seconds left.
All right, let's bring it back together here. I want to hear from just a couple of groups about uh, some of the things that you have paid top dollar for or a dirt cheap price. I want to hear from the troublemakers right here, this group right here. Oh, so the car, the car's body rusted out before the engine. What kind of car was it? A Buick. Oh, man. So did you pay a lot of money for this car? Okay, so that was something up there. Either one. All right. We're trying to look for like some, something you paid for, expensive, and it like tanks. All right, yes. Let's hear it, Erica. hear from one final group, the Rushings and Sally. You don't have anything. You guys are smart shoppers. All right, last group right here in the back. Brian Kreitz, Jeff Barnett. He bought passes to Disneyland. (laughs) All right, well, this obviously did not go the direction that I hoped it would go, Uh, except for the plumbing issues. Anyways, anyways, you get what you pay for is not always true. Sometimes you purchase a brand name good that actually falls apart while something you buy that's actually really cheap lives on. It's rather frustrating, unpredictable. Uh, We've seen high-budget Hollywood films with huge, massive budgets absolutely bomb at the box office, while certain low-budget films are absolute blockbusters. In sports, it is all too common to see a Raiders quarterback sign a ridiculously lucrative contract only to be injured or have a subpar season. While, while a rookie like Dodgers shortstop Corey Seager can sign the league minimum and have an explosive MVP year. Now, you can't always judge a movie by its budget or an athlete by their salary. Furthermore, you can't judge a servant of Christ by their pay or lack thereof. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. He chose not to receive payment from the church at Corinth. Instead, he established this church in a sin-hardened city at his own expense, out of his own pocket. We are called as Christians to expend ourselves entirely, offering everything we are to represent Jesus with our lives. 
As we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, it appears that Paul's apostleship is in question. Well, what's apostleship? We'll get to that in just a moment. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18, which we're going to be exploring here tonight, Paul shows how he has set aside his rights as an apostle in order to win as many as possible to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has made tremendous personal sacrifices for the sake of others. Paul has decided to give up his salary here in Corinth, but this is in no way a reflection of his focus or his attitude or apostleship. It's out of the question to assume a you-get-what-you-pay-for mentality when it comes to Paul. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. It reads, Am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord with my own eyes? Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we belong to you, that we are called by you, and that you have big plans for us. I pray you would open up our hearts and minds to hear you tonight, to focus on your word, to be challenged tonight. Lord, to, to not grow weary in doing good. For we know at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We are grateful, Lord, for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul begins verse 1 with four rhetorical questions. Now as pastors, we often ask a lot of rhetorical questions, questions that we're not actually asking you to answer. Uh, but some of you guys are still learning how to do that, but that's okay. Uh, I think that sometimes it takes a little longer for others, but rhetorical questions are basically questions that you aren't immediately going to answer, but they are questions that require some sort of already assumed response. So Paul begins here with four rhetorical questions. You might be like, well, is, did he just like insult me? I don't know. But anyways, Paul begins with four rhetorical questions. All four expect a positive answer, and all four become increasingly specific. The first one, am I not as free as anyone else? The answer is, of course you are free, Paul. Paul was free to enjoy the freedom that all believers enjoyed. In a world filled of slaves, to be free meant you didn't have to answer to anyone for your actions or seek the approval of others. Am I not an apostle? Of course you are an apostle, Paul. Paul was one who had the rights and privileges of any apostle. What's an apostle? The Greek is apostolos. And here we see kind of some of the criteria when it comes to a, an apostle. It literally means one sent forth, like an envoy or a missionary Paul would regularly identify himself as an apostle or a divinely appointed missionary, a God-sent missionary. An apostle must be a witness to the resurrected Jesus, 
demonstrate signs of apostleship, like signs and wonders and miracles, and prove oneself through turning people to the faith. So here's like the basic criteria of apostleship. Well, let's go back to verse 1 here with this third rhetorical question. Paul asks, haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord, with my own eyes? The answer is, of course, and it confirms his discipleship. Paul had seen the risen Christ as he was on the road to, anyone want to say where? Damascus, you guys are so smart. Isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? The answer is, of course. And it also confirms his apostleship. He had founded the church in Corinth. Verse 2 says, Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. Although some may have doubted Paul's apostleship, it shouldn't be the case with the Corinthians. They were the proof, or literally the seal, that he was an apostle. If the Corinthian believers deny Paul's apostleship, they actually deny their own existence because they are the proof or the seal of Paul's apostleship. What does it mean that they are the proof or the seal of Paul's apostleship? You know what a seal is? A seal is basically, in the ancient world, a warm blob of wax. You can see on the picture here a a cooled or or sealed seal. And a signet ring would be pressed into the seal, and the letter would be sealed. A fixed seal would show that the contents had not been opened, and it also showed the genuineness of the contents because each signet ring had its own particular markers, identifying markers of the one who had sent it. It also showed that the right person had sent this. By this, Paul is saying that the Corinthian believers are his work in the Lord, that they bear his seal. Now, that... That little phrase right there, they bear his seal. Uh, I'm still getting used to coming and preaching back in the United States. In Slovakia, there were different ways where we would have to kind of break down what we were trying to communicate in ways that our translators would understand and also our listeners. And so this is a phrase that would completely probably like get your translator all off course, that they bear his seal. You have like two different words. It could mean animals or items or verbs. You ever think about that? No? B-E-A-R. Never mind. Anyways. All right. Anyways. We'll keep moving forward here. You guys are awake, right? Feel your pulse real quick tonight. B-E-A-R could mean bear like with fur. But it could also mean, like, an image. Hey, Brian, you got it. All right. I, got, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just trying to be honest. So anyways, verse, verses 3 through 14, Paul sets forth his rights as an apostle, and he also expresses his right to receive financial support. His argument is based on a barrage of rhetorical questions. Verses 3 through 4, this is my answer to those who question my authority. 
Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? In this context, the right to live in your homes and share your meals is figurative for financial support. It means to receive hospitality for the, from those who responded to Paul's preaching. Paul is saying that he had a legitimate right to receive financial support from the people to whom he ministered. Paul continues his argument in verses 5 through 6 by raising two other issues. Verses 5 and 6 says, Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Evidently, it was customary for the other apostles and for Jesus' own brothers to take their wives with them when they traveled to minister. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support others? Paul and Barnabas, unlike the other apostles and missionaries, worked for their living rather than asking for support from the churches that they had established. But this shouldn't make them any less of an apostle. Paul and Barnabas chose to work with their hands so as not to be a burden to those they ministered to. Paul and Barnabas had stooped to the demeaning work, at least in the Corinthians' eyes, of making tents or leatherworking while they ministered in Corinth. I think it's vital here, I think it's really important here to understand the context uh, of vocation in the Greco-Roman world, to understand a little bit more of the background of the culture and why this is actually such a big deal, especially in Corinth. You see, in Corinth, orators, teachers, philosophers, people like Paul were well paid. So it was unthinkable that someone like Paul would not receive a paycheck. And also you can see on the screen when Tucker gets it up there that for the most part, Greeks despised manual labor. They had slaves do manual labor so the citizens could enjoy sports, philosophy, and leisure. So it was difficult for the Corinthians to accept Paul as an apostle because of his manual labor. In the Corinthians' social framework, how could this so-called apostle be an apostle if he wasn't paid and if he worked with his hands? Until about two or so years ago, maybe even just a year and a half ago, uh, I worked multiple jobs while being a pastor here at Journey the Church. I was taking care of horses. I was doing some landscaping. I was doing some soccer training, some homeschool teaching. And there were times where I didn't always feel like a pastor. Or maybe I didn't look like to other people as a pastor. Why is he doing landscaping? Why is he taking care of horses? Why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? Working other jobs actually didn't make me less of a pastor, just an incredibly busy one. But for Paul, working other jobs didn't exclude him of being worthy of support. It didn't exclude him of being equal to the other apostles. In verses 7 through 14, Paul gives reasons why he has the right to be supported by the churches to whom he ministered. 
and why he shouldn't have to work at a trade to earn a living so he can devote his energy to study and prayer and teaching and preaching. He begins with three illustrations here in the next couple of verses from everyday experience in the workplace. Verse 7 says, What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Paul is pointing out that soldiers, they don't fight all day and then go home to a civilian job at night to make ends meet, to pay for food and shelter and clothing and weapons. No, the government provides all the necessary resources for them to function as a soldier. You would expect that if you worked hard in the vineyard that you would probably be paid and perhaps you would receive some portion of the crops. Shepherds who would take care of flocks, maybe owned by other people, should at least have the right to get paid and also to receive some of the milk. In the same way, a Christian worker has the right to expect benefits from their labor. Verses 8 through 10 says, Am I expressing merely a human opinion, or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us, so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Paul here quotes an Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 25.4 regarding the treatment of oxen. You must not muzzle an ox. You know what a muzzle is, where you put it on a dog that's like biting everybody. Well, they do the same for an ox, so that the ox wouldn't eat up all the, the things. But the law said, don't do that. You can't be doing that. That's like animal cruelty. You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Instead, the ox should be allowed to eat the grain. The point is, if God cared so much about the animals who serve the people, shouldn't he care about the people who serve his people? That's the point that Paul is trying to make here. Verses 11 through 12 continues, Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? It's only fair, right? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Those who benefit from spiritual ministry should physically support those who minister to them. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says in Galatians 6.6. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. But strangely, in spite of this principle that Paul lays out, he actually surrenders his rights. As the planter of the Corinthian church, Paul had a right to the support of the Corinthian church more than any of the other ministers did. Yet he did not insist on his right. 
In verse 13, Paul makes a reference to Old Testament Jewish history and custom pertaining to the temple. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings? This refers to the Old Testament Levites and priests, Levites and priests who they would perform a, a, an offering where the people would come up with the, the cow or with the, the sheep or the goat, and they would dice it up. They would spill its blood all over the altar, and then they would cut it up and barbecue it, and they would eat some of that. Some of the portion would be set aside for God. More of the portion would be actually eaten by the people together. So they would receive some of their pay in this way. This concept, though, of paying God's servants is not a New Testament notion. It actually goes back to the Old Testament, and it's common also in other pagan religions where the priests would receive an offering of some sort, and it would be cooked up for Yahweh or for these pagan gods. Well, Paul saw that his ministry was basically priestly service, where the worker deserves their wage. Verse 14 says, in the same way the Lord, that is Jesus, ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Paul has made an argument from common sense, from everyday customs, from Old Testament traditions, but here he explains that Jesus taught the same right for servants to be paid. Case closed. Jesus said it, we better do it then. It always is awkward when we talk about money. And it's maybe awkward for you to talk about money or to hear about money. Um, it's even more awkward for me to talk about money as I'm getting paid, and here we see Paul refusing to get paid, but I'm here getting paid talking about refusing to get paid. It's very confusing, but also it's very awkward. I want you to know that I am not asking for a raise. That's not <laughs> what this is all about. I have personally the incredible privilege and blessing to be financially supported as a servant of the gospel. But there was a time when we as the staff made zero dollars. Zero dollars. Zero point zero zero dollars. And I know that we would do what we do today for zero dollars. We, we really would. I mean, the entire staff has followed a model of service before salary. We all have come on in some sort of serving capacity before a single cent was given to us. Service before salary. It would be my hope and dream that, that all of the people who, who serve here in a full-time ministry role that, that we could afford to support but we must be resourceful with the funds that God has given to us. But my question to us as the church is how do we support the zero-dollar earning servants of the gospel? How do we support those people? I think there are amazing ways other than financially. 
there are amazing ways an encouraging email, a letter, a phone call would mean the world to any of our tirelessly serving volunteers and leaders. There are other creative possibilities as well. Childcare, providing services, taking them out to dinner, taking them to the movies, gift cards, all sorts of wonderful things. I want you to talk to the people around you at your table. What are some practical ways you can support those who serve? Okay, about 30 seconds left. Well, I hope that you came up with some good ideas. Uh, I hope that you came up with a lot of different ways that maybe you can serve those people who definitely deserve to be uh, appreciated in a lot of different ways. So if you came up with some good ideas and stuff, 
I, I know you did because you guys are very, very smart and very generous and loving and caring. Uh, don't come up to me and Jeff and say, hey, I have this really good idea of serving people. Here. Don't do that. Just do it. Just serve. Just love. Just care. And I know you guys are already doing this because we have this overflowing of love that's happening here at Journey of the Church. But just do it. Just go out and do it. Don't wait on us. And that goes for a lot of different things. If you want to serve, if you want to love, if you want to care for somebody, I, I remember Jeff would, would get this lady, uh, I think it was from a, a different church, and she would call him every time like she saw a homeless person. She's like, hey, Jeff, I saw a homeless person. Just want to let you know about him. Like, all right, so why, why like, so... Yeah, you should probably help him out, she would say to him. He's like, well, why don't you help her out? You're right there, you know? So I'm not saying you guys are that type of, uh, you know, at that spot in your faith. But what I'm saying is we just need to, to go and do it, run with it. And this is especially crucial. This might be a little uh, bunny trail. But when people are going through difficult times, especially when it comes to, like, death in a family, those sorts of things, the worst thing we can say is, like, let me know what I can do to help you. Like, let me know if you need me or something like that. But, but going and actually just doing something, mowing their lawn, like, I don't know, like doing their laundry, doing something, like just going and doing it. I mean, yeah, maybe you should ask permission first. <laughs> but don't, don't, to me, like, and I know we have good intentions when we say, like, let me know if you need some help. But that can also be a cop-out, too. So let's, let's continue to love the world in these ways, looking at the people who, who, are, who aren't always noticed or recognized for the hard work that they do. So let's continue here. Having argued vigorously, Paul is arguing vigorously for his right to receive support from the Corinthians. Now Paul reverses and argues just as strongly for his right to give up this right, which was his point from the beginning. He explained why he had deliberately not accepted the financial support of the Corinthian church. And this section, it gives us a neat insight into the apostle's soul. Verse 15 says, Yet I have never used any of these rights, what rights, the, the rights to receive your financial support. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Paul didn't want to get paid. But apparently he took pride in the fact that he didn't burden his churches for support the way that other missionaries did. Verse 16 says, Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. Paul understands himself to be called by God to preach the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. He feels that he can't boast about preaching the gospel, but he can boast, however, about doing so without asking for any material support for his ministry. He feels that not preaching would be to fail in carrying out God's commission. This is a, a strange and, and perplexing verse here. 
But verse 17 says, if I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. Paul recognizes that he deserves no reward for preaching because he preaches out of the necessity to fulfill his divine commission, his call from God. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Paul's reward for preaching the gospel willingly was the privilege of preaching it without costs to his hearers. He wasn't charging people at the door to to come in and hear the gospel. But to recap our passage tonight, it's a very strange passage. The Corinthians assumed that you get what you pay for. And since Paul was serving for free, some questioned his credentials. So Paul builds an airtight case for receiving payment, his right to receive payment, but then he insists that he's not going to take a hold of his rights. That's our passage tonight. But I've been thinking a lot about this, you get what you pay for statement. And sure, the Corinthians are getting a cut-rate smoking deal for Paul's zero-dollar ministry. They're getting it for free. And, you know, we could delve into the intricacies of should servants of the gospel get paid or should we follow Paul's example and not pay our ministers and servants of the gospel as Paul was doing here in Corinth. But what what resonates more with me on a personal level tonight, on a challenging level, is to ask the bigger question Does God get what he paid for? Does God get what he paid for? And now you cannot even begin to put a price tag on the cost that God paid for you and me. But in my life, is God getting what he paid for? Like, oh, that hurts, right? That, that's convicting. But is God getting what he paid for with my life? Because it cost him everything. And how costly are we willing to get to expend our lives for the gospel? I like what he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, above all, it means like the most important thing ever. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. Conducting ourselves worthy, in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. I think that's asking the question, is God getting what he paid for? 
I want us just to think about that as we leave this place tonight. Is God getting what he paid for in my life? Not, not my neighbor's wife, life, not, not my wife's life, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, anyways, it's been a long day. <laughs> anyways, so uh, there are other things that can be said and have been said on this stage, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyways, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, appreciate you. You know, this is a tough. This is a tough passage, and it's 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 one of those spots where you're like, man, this is part of the Bible too. Well, yeah, it is, and it's important. I mean, in our men's Friday morning Bible study, we, we just finished the book of Zechariah. That's an interesting and perplexing book of the Bible that. I don't really want to study for a while, but I think that all scripture is worthy of our attention, and thank you for your attention tonight. I really do appreciate that. Um, but I, I want us to consider this question, you know, is God getting what he's paying for or what he has paid for? So let's pray. Father, we want to live lives that are worthy of your sacrifice we want to take the magnitude of what you did on the cross seriously. And Lord, we want to live bold lives, lives that are free, lives that, that care deeply about you and care deeply about others. So send us out, Lord, with this burden on our hearts, wondering, are you getting what you paid for? And if not, God, if our lives do not reflect that, I pray you would show us clearly where we need to make changes and give us the strength to keep moving forward. We love you with all our heart, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, everybody.